0: It for a while, but um, we are in 2 Kings studying Hezekiah and uh, an interesting character, one of the most godly kings in Judah, as we saw last week. The only, One of two kings after David who were said to be equal to Dave, David as far as their relationship with the Lord. And we haven't gotten to one yet, but we'll get to him. Very soon as we're really coming to the end of this book and the end of Israel as a sovereign nation. And, uh, so let's, uh, let's uh, stand and we'll read some of chapter 19. Can't read all of it really for time's sake. I'm gonna have to finish it up last week and I probably won't finish this week, but in Second uh, Kings chapter 19, um, if you remember, of course, uh, Rabshakeh, the emissary of, of sorts from uh, uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has been uh, trying to get Hezekiah to hand over the city. We started to look at the way he did that and how that corresponds often to the wiles of sin and Satan. We'll finish that up a little bit today. And uh, so... Uh, the the three guys who were listening to all this uh, kind of go and report to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah um, rips his clothes, and they come in with their clothes ripped. You know, it's a time of mourning in, in a sense, and so Hezekiah sends for Isaiah the prophet, and uh, so uh, let's just start reading in uh, verse eight as Sennacherib now kind of gets involved in all this, trying to get uh, Jerusalem to give up. And it says in verse 8, And Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning ter Hakka, king of Cush, Behold, he has sent out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard that the king of Assyria has done to all lands devoting themselves to destruction, and shall and shall you be delivered? Have the God of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rizpah, and the people of Eden who were. In Telizar, where is the king of Hamath? The king of Arpad, the king of the of the city of Seraphim, the king of Hina for the or the king of uh, I- Arba. So, um, do as best I can with those pronunciations, but you see, he kind of rehashes it states really what R- Rabshakeh has already said. Of course, Rabshakeh was was uh, speaking for. Uh, Sennachery to start with, so he kind of uses the same logic, of course, trying to get Hezekiah to give up. So that brings us to verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, Be- Before the uh, O Lord, King of the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, and all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Find your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he have sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they are not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they are destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, Please, from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So it is a very great (coughs) prayer that um, Hezekiah prays to God, and we will deal with that in a little bit. Um, Well, let's just stop there. I mean, you can go ahead and be seated. as, as I've said before, it really wouldn't hurt for you to read these uh, chapters at home during the week because often we can't really read all of them for time's sake. We'll get into Isaiah's prophecy of the fall of Sennacherib, which he restates, uh, rewrites in his own uh, work in the book of Isaiah. But uh, anyway, we're, we are going to center a little bit on uh, that prayer of Hezekiah today, for sure. Um, just by way of Review. We saw that Hezekiah was considered to be as godly as David. And we see his life demonstrating this, of course. But that does not mean that he did not have some glaring failures during his life. And we saw some of those last week as well. But ultimately, Hezekiah will be faithful to the Lord and not fear man. And of course, that's just a good example of someone who loves the Lord while we still struggle with sin. We will persevere to the end. We will not deny the Lord if we are one of His. So um, we were looking at, in chapter 18, some of the, uh, ways that the things that Rabshakeh said that sound a lot like what we hear from Satan in this world, what we, but our own flesh and our own sinful minds sometimes come up with these excuses of why we should capitulate and do what is wrong and not obey the Lord. Uh, the first one we looked at was um, that uh, his past failures, and often because we have not done well in the past, that becomes an excuse for us to kind of give up, and and that's what he's trying to get uh, Hezekiah to do here. Um initially we saw that he uh, succumbs to, to some of these things but um, let me get the right thing here um, but he also another thing he tries to do in verse chapter 18 as you read through the uh, things that uh, Rabshakeh says to Hezekiah is um, he tries to get those around us to fail he, he, he calls upon the citizens of, the, of Jerusalem uh, don't let Hezekiah uh, lead you uh, to follow the Lord, it won't turn out good for you. And so, uh, much like, uh, I think s- Satan, and, and again, our own minds sometimes do, is we, uh, we have people around us who tempt us to do wrong. And th- they come from people sometimes who should know better. And, and the reason I think it's important for us to think about that is to be, to be ready for it, to realize that, you know, we're all sinners and even the best of us sometimes give bad advice so just because a brother or sister or even perhaps the pastor says something always uh, judge it by the word of God sometimes people around you someone, your friends, your family people who say they love you uh, if they don't know the Lord uh, don't be surprised if they give you some bad advice be weary, don't assume anything and uh, so it seems what's kind of going on here the temptation comes from those who we sometimes trust, and we have to be aware of those things. In verse 23, he points out their weakness. Uh, again, that's another tactic, that, well, who are you? You can't do this. Why, why even try? And it, it, we, we often rehearse these things in our mind, right? Um, he, he says that you've not only angered Yahweh, but you're weak. You can't even find 2,000 men, in verse 23, to uh, ride the horses if I supplied them for you. And, and you say, well, um, I've, I've heard, you know, we might think, well, when, when do we ever succumb to this, or where do we ever see this? I've heard through the years professing Christians say that, you know, I just can't help doing something. I, I'm just too weak. I can't do it. And I, or again, it, you kind of combine that with past failures. But think about it. What's the, what are, who's really being attacked here? And we'll see this later in Hezekiah's prayer is the Lord himself. Because when the Christian somehow is told or believes that he can't obey the Lord, he's too weak to do what's right, we're saying that the Lord can't supply the strength. It's an attack upon the Lord. In fact, all these are to some degree. And so uh, somewhere we buy into the to the lie that our God isn't strong enough to deliver us, uh, supply the strength to do what he tells us to do. And uh, so, when we see, uh, we see this, when we see Christians defeated and sometimes made miserable with the same problems, the same sins and weaknesses year after year, uh, is that they they have been they bought into this idea, or maybe it's just laziness. Of course, because certainly sin causes us to be lazy. It's hard to fight sin. It's hard to look for the Lord sometimes. It's hard to to say no to temptations around you. And so we just give up. We don't think we can do it. In the verse 25, he even another tactic here is that he pretends to know God's will. He lies to him. Really, he says, "God has told me that um, you are to uh, give up and not fight, and uh, that you know it's, he wants me to have my way with you." And we notice that this doesn't work. But we see again that without a working knowledge of the Bible. It's easy to succumb to sin and temptation because someone comes along and they say, this is what the Bible says. This is what God has told me. Which is really one of the unfortunate tactics out there today because there are so many Christians who think that God just tells you things that might be contrary to God's word. That They have a thought and they say, well, God told me that. You know, I'm not saying that God doesn't sometimes lead us and lead our thinking, but it's it's generally going to be through the meditation of God's word, and it's always going to coincide with God's word. So if we don't have a good working knowledge of the word of God, someone can stand up and say, well, this is what the Bible means, and this is what uh, God's will is for your life, and we you know, might, might not have the necessary tools to be able to uh, recognize that as not right. And so, you know, how many... Have, uh, used the excuse that God wants me to be happy, so it's okay for me to do something that's clearly forbidden in scripture. You know, you, you've been, you, you've bought into this lie that, uh, God's will isn't necessarily just revealed in God's word, but, um we can, uh, kind of twist it to our own liking. But we found out in a, well, we have looked at Isaiah 10. Remember Isaiah 10 is one of those three scriptures that we, we use to, to Understand the sovereignty of God in this world. And there Isaiah is telling the king of Assyria that it is God's will for him to come and to do, to discipline, to chasten God's people. Of course they have already carried off the northern tribes. And, and, and but what Isaiah says under inspiration is that you, it is God's will that you do this. He's using you for that purpose. But you're not doing it because God has told you to do it. And that you say, okay, I want to obey the Lord, so I'm going to attack Israel. Um, you're doing it because you're evil. Because you want those, you want the witches of Israel. You want to enslave these people. Because you're just an awful person. Of course, the king, uh, you know, the Assyrians were noted for being some of the cruelest people that ever lived. So he says, "You're not doing it to please the Lord. You're doing it to please yourself, and you'll you'll be judged for that." So we know that that uh, God didn't tell Sennacherib to uh, attack Israel. Sennacherib's just using that, trying to get them to give up. And as I think we mentioned last week, in verse twenty six, the Jewish officials tell him, "Could you speak in Aramaic?" So that not so these people who are around you know are listening don't really know what you're saying, and, and uh, uh, Seneca says, no, I'm not going to do that, um, you know, Satan doesn't play by rules, he's not trying to compromise with you, he wants you to compromise, Satan never, uh, tr- is, is our friend, he never, uh and this uh, sinful flesh isn't either, never trust it, never think it's going to help you, and if you, I you don't know how many of you read the Holy War by John Bunyan, but it's hard not to think that he got a lot of his writing for that book from this whole account with Hezekiah and Sennacherib. but if you haven't read that, it's an excellent book, and I would definitely recommend it. Uh, It just gives you a, because he really does a lot of what we've been doing, showing how this pictures the spiritual warfare that we face today, and, 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 and so forth, and Christ as he battles Satan, and so forth. But, um, down at verse twenty-eight, as I said, basically Rabshaka ignores their pleas and moves on to his next ploy, which is to promise things far better than the Lord seems to have provided. And of course, we know that's a tempta- always a temptation that I know the Lord has said this, but this won't really make me happy. This might make me lose my job, this this will be a problem. Um, I know you know people who know that if they do the right thing, their spouse is gonna leave. Because they have an unsafe spouse. Hey, you gotta think about that. And I know people who, who sometimes I think make the wrong decision because they think that they've got to do whatever it takes to keep their spouse happy, even though it means that they're not gonna obey the Lord. And, and the Lord never said that marriage trumps everything else, right? If you're, you remember Jesus words that you're, that our relationship to our families must seem like hate when compared to our love. The, the lord and so um he, he tells them that if you if you'll just give up i will every man will have his fig tree every in other words that was their kind of way of saying that that you'll have all your needs supplied and eventually i will take you to a land that will be just it basically says flowing with milk and honey is good or better than what you've got now so just just uh Give up, but make, let, make me your king and everything will be okay. And we know that uh, that sounds a lot like Jesus' temptation, right? That a lot of these things are the same things that Satan used. Satan says, if you will just worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Everything will be good. It, it'll be better to serve me than, and, and sin than uh, the Lord Almighty. And of course, we think to ourselves, well, you know, I never fall for that. I know better. But I think we are tempted to do it all the time. When uh we think about the consequences of serving the Lord and think, well, you know, if I just don't do that, if I just compromise here, if I just kind of let this thing slide, life will be better for me. That's the same temptation. <clears throat> but, of course, we know life won't be better for you because not pleasing the Lord is the uh, worst thing you can do. And so... Um, one interesting here before we kind of move into chapter 19 is that if you read these last several verses Rabshakeh never refers to Hezekiah as their king he never says listen or don't listen to king Hezekiah he always just refers to him as Hezekiah and if you go and you read uh, 29, 30 31, 32 you'll see that but when he refers to King, the king of Assyria, he always refers to him as the king. So a subtle way of, of of basically saying God is not king. uh This world is the king. And you need to understand that. Don't don't follow Hezekiah, who is a representative of God, of course, but follow the, the, the king of this world. And, of course, that's the bottom line. If you read 19, to 28 through 29, you see him, him doing that. And that's always the bottom line, though, in our service and our obedience, withstanding temptation. Who is king? You, you cannot serve God and Mammon. So it tells you a lot about your heart. If if my focus is daily on how I can please my King, my Creator, my Savior, or do I uh, see not so much Satan is king again? Because Christians, that's not our problem. Our problem is. When we think we're the king, when what we want, what makes us happy is more important. And so it's always the bottom line when it comes to that. But, of course, in verse 35, as always, he goes way too far because he says, Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hands, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands? And that's, again, the bottom line is, um, at the end of the day, your God's not going to help you because the other gods have. But, of course, that's the problem. <laughs> He's saying that about the true God. He doesn't understand that there's only one true God. There's only one creator. He, he thinks that all these other gods are legitimate in some way and have some measure of power. And he makes a fatal mistake where And Of course, it will um, eventually lead to his judgment. And so that brings us then to uh, Hezekiah, say, part two. And that's in chapter 19, and uh, it seems clear that as Hezekiah hears all this, and he tears his clothes, and the three men who come in and tell them all this, uh, tear their clothes, that they, they, Hezekiah says, don't answer him a word. It, it's like he's saying, he can't believe what he's hearing, and he says, don't, don't, don't even answer him. And I think there's sometimes good advice in that. Um, you know, he's basically saying, "Let the Lord fight our battles." He understands that there's nothing they can do anyway in the flesh; they don't have the numbers to even begin to put up a, um, a resistance. And of course, it's good for us as Christians to always remember that too—that in the flesh, you you think you can withstand something, you can do right, and as soon as you think that, you you cease to rely upon the Lord, and that always leads to to uh, problems and sin. And here he, he realizes the time for dialogue is over. And, uh, you know, what we need to do, he says, is humble ourselves before the Lord. And he calls for Isaiah and he wants to hear the word of the Lord. And I think it's a good example of how it's usually best to let the Lord fight our battles. And, and by that, I don't mean that we don't have a responsibility in the flesh, as it were, to do stuff. I mean, Hezekiah certainly by this time had shut the gates, right, that he had his armaments ready, armaments ready. And uh, so there was things he did, being responsible, but at the end of the day, he knew that if God didn't give him the victory, that was the end of it. And we made that point, remember, just a couple of weeks ago, that these accounts are written in such a way that lets us know that the the strength of the army has absolutely nothing to do with who's the outcome, right, who's going to win. It's the power of God, and it's the will of God that will determine those things. And so, uh, he. uh but he says, we realize that, that we've done all we can, and now we've got to be able to let this thing go. We've got to give this to the Lord. We, he's been brought low enough, and that's always a good thing, to realize that I cannot do anything else. I need God. And so in verse 6, Hezekiah is reminded by the prophet Isaiah, that these are just words and there is no reason to fear words or the one who speaks those words, right? He um, says this in verse 6 where it says, Isaiah said to him, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, because Ezekiah sent these three emissaries to him, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria has reviled me. And, see, God knows that this is really an attack upon me, because if he's the only one who has the power to defeat him anyway. So, behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own uh, land. And, of course, you know that uh, takes place. We'll see that a little bit later on. So, in other words, God is just reminding us how easy he can take care of our enemies. When you think about it, often we it never come we get so worked up over something it's gonna be a problem, and the Lord just works it out. When we when we just trust him, he'll he worked that out works it out so often all the things we thought were gonna happen never happen anyway. You now sometimes they do. Sometimes things do get you say as bad as they could be, or you know, the worst case scenario. But uh it's just it just reminds us in, in this case God tells Hezekiah, uh, it's a lot of bluster. And it's a word. It's a word of a man. And he says, what you need to fear, what you need to rely upon is what I say. And I say that I'm going to work all this out for good. See, and that's why I say Romans twenty-eight twenty-eight is so important because that always undergirds everything. Uh, no matter how bad things get and no matter how many mistakes I might make and so forth I know it's going to work out for my good and that's the word that we have to trust in that's what Hezekiah is being told here and so in verse 10 while he has received the word of the Lord he also receives a written word from the king of Assyria what he does is kind of rehash I said rehash everything Rabbi said he kind of writes it down in an official document, uh, here's what is going to happen to you if you don't do what you're told and so forth. And then he delivers that to, uh, those three guys. They deliver it to Hezekiah. And one of the great, in all of these, this whole account, one of the greatest parts of this is, uh, starting in verse 8, 14, we just read where Hezekiah takes this scroll, this document, and he just lays it out before the Lord. And he makes this great prayer, and it is such a great example of what we have to do when we are faced with something that we, you know, don't know what to do, or we, or we, we know that in the flesh we can't do anything about this. We've got to lay at Jesus' feet. We've got to say, here, Lord, this, this is what uh, they're saying. This is what they're saying they're going to do to me. This is my problem, uh, and, and I need you to take care of me. And we're going to look at his prayer here in just a moment as an example of how we are to approach the Lord. Uh, someone said that about verse 14 that Hezekiah drops anchor in the Lord here. That's a good way to put it too. You know, I, I generally refer to it as laying these things at Jesus' feet, but it's certainly another way to say that is that he drops anchor in Christ, in the Lord, right, in Yahweh. That's his anchor, and, and it's a biblical... Concept the Hebrews talks about that, and um, our anchor is in the Lord, and uh, that's what He does here. He understands. And of course, if you're a, someone who's you know familiar with you know boating and shipping and stuff like that, you understand that, that how important the anchor can be, right? Mm-hmm. So it keeps you grounded. So in a, in a world that's uh, like like the waters, like the like the uh, waves of the sea. It would cost you all over the place. And so, um, I, I mentioned, uh, I think, last week that Second Chronicles, especially 30 through 31, uh, that whole section in there is very good to read because I uh, the writer goes into great detail into the reforms that this guy has already made. Remember, he took over from his father, who was an extremely wicked king, and his father before him. And so the land was just completely full of idolatry, and Hezekiah goes through, and he doesn't just tell people, "Hey, you shouldn't be doing that." He goes and he destroys all these places, and he, and he you know, he he puts uh, teeth to his uh, will. And I think it's good to remember that because as Hezekiah now comes with this prayer to the Lord, it's not just out of the blue. He's a man who has for uh his since he was actually uh, a teenager, or since he was younger, has always been serving the Lord. And he's been putting feet to that. He's been out there fighting the Lord's battles. He's been growing, you might say, in his faith, so that now when the when these things come, he has a, a measure of maturity that he knows what to do. Had he been you know, fiddling around with idols as some of his, like his dad and his grandfather and so forth had been doing. And all of a sudden this happens. Well, he'd be looking to his idols. He'd be looking to the king of Egypt, which didn't go too well for him, right? And, and to other kings. But now Hezekiah has finally got to the point where he realizes that that's all a mistake. That hasn't worked. I'm to, and, he, and he's learned to do the right thing. And so, again, it just reminds us that the Lord will help us but if we're not strong enough in the faith to ask God and to to trust in him it's not going to do any good so he got serious about honoring the Lord in his life he took the necessary steps that that required and so now he's ready to withstand this great trial not by trying to fight it himself but by coming to the Lord where he should have been all along um so that's why it's such a firm, it's so important to have a firm grip on who God is and to be in the habit of honoring Him and, ex- and exalting Him because the more God is lifted up in our eyes, the greater our faith is. The more, the more I understand the greatness of God and how He is in control of all things, how that all things have been ordained from of all, of, of the purposes that He has, the end result that He has for us, of how my salvation works so that it's not about how well I do, but how well Christ has done. That my anchor is in Christ. See, the more I understand all that, the more I'm able to look at the the see the, the, the topsy turvy world and, and not be bothered by it. And to be able to handle it, right? That's why it's important. I remember uh there's a guy who told me this is in my uh first church. Um he said, Pastor, you speak about the sovereignty of God too much. It kind of took me by by surprise. Every once in a while, somebody says something that kind of surprises you. And, and, you know, as you guys know, I have always walked through the Bible. I have, have, from time to time, I will talk, preach topically. But as a rule, I just walk through the Bible. And I said, said, I'm I'm not sure that you can overemphasize. Now, if I preach about the sovereignty of God as a subject every week, you know, I understand that, right? But I said, I'm not sure that you can do that because I said, I'm not sure what else is, is more important than understanding who God is. You know, because our problem is that we are like to think of ourselves as God. And God needs to be lifted up in our eyes. And so that was a kind of an interesting conversation we had, but anyway, you, you try to learn from every, even your criticism and hopefully learn some things from it, but I thought it was kind of interesting myself. Um, but a strong warrior only becomes the way that way from discipline, from preparation. You cannot give the, the Lord an hour or two a week and just kind of come and have part and listen to the message and don't think about it after that, you don't pray that much, you don't read your Bible, you don't you're not meditating on the word, meditate on the message or whatever whatever you're studying. If you don't if the word of God isn't saturated in your life, don't expect to do well. When it comes to the sin in your life, to temptation, and, and all the other difficulties of life. Mm-hmm. And so, just uh, to kind of prove the point here, 2 uh, Chronicles 31.10. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all the, of Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, in, in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart. And prospered. So it wasn't half-hearted. You you cannot obey the Lord half-heartedly. And that's what we're getting, that's what we're seeing as we get into uh, the the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. It's the heart matters. Everything else, that's the only thing that matters. Whatever you do outwardly, if your heart isn't right, it doesn't matter. And so he, he did the things because he loved the Lord for the right reasons and he prospered. And then I thought this was kind of the, uh, you go into chapter 32. And after these things, so after Hezekiah being just a, just a really solid example of godliness, after these things, these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib king of Assyria came and invaded Judah and camped himself against a fortified city, thinking to win them for himself. So don't be fooled into thinking that as long as I got my ducks all in a row and I'm doing right, that I'm, Lord's just going to get let me breeze through life because it's not going to happen, and that is the biggest one. Of the biggest lies of our day this, this idea of the health and wealth that um, God just wants you to be happy, and if you will get your act together, um, things will go great. That that's just not what the Bible teaches, and for very good reason. We'll get into that later, and have of course talked about that in the past. So after two chapters of showing how Sennacherib of kingdom of Israel came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking the window for himself, the Lord gives us faith to use in this world, not just to think uh, uh, good things are going to happen to me. You see, it, what, what has been happening is that he has been building up Hezekiah's faith. And so Hezekiah doesn't say, well, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening to me. Because that's not the issue. The issue is, it is happening. Now, Lord, what must we do about it? And so, that's what we need to learn, is how to answer what what the right, correct response for a Christian is in every difficulty. How do you deal with threats? Are you dealing with threats? And by threats, I mean the the, the things that happen that, that come against us, the trials of life. Do we spread them out before the Lord in prayer? Do we say, "Lord, here it is," or is our first effort to try to uh, do something in the flesh? When we encounter opposition? put it before the Lord and pray? And many times we suffer through sleepless nights and upset stomachs and high blood pressure over things that we really have no control over. And a lot of uh, the f- the physical problems that, that people have are only a result of stress. And, you know, I'm not going to sit up here and try to tell you that I don't have stress and that I just, you know, this always perfectly rely upon the Lord in all things. But I certainly know, certainly in, in after you know, after 65 years of, almost 65 years of life, that when I can give it to the Lord and say, Lord, I've done all I know to do. And now, I, now I've got to just trust you to take care of this for me. And, and leave it there. And it doesn't mean I don't ever think about it. And, you know, you have that struggle, but it, it's, it helps. It's the right thing to do. It, it's what pleases the Lord. Um, I remember I had a, a woman up in New York who, in the church who, I, you know, I would have to say even probably this day, she's, she's just a weak Christian. She's always struggled with things and, there's a lot of different reasons for that, but I, I think she was saved and, and so forth. And she, and part of the problems was her and her husband. They just always had a lot of problems, financial problems. Just, just you know, just sometimes I would ask the Lord, I said, "Why?" You ever done that? A family's struggling. You think, Lord, I mean, can't you just ease up a little bit on these people? They're they're just struggling, you know, this and that, and the other thing, and and some of it was their fault, but a lot of it wasn't, you know. And you just kind of feel sorry for him, in a sense. But I remember go, you know talking to her one day and saying, um, "Alice, um, what you've got to learn to do is take this and drop it at the Lord's feet and leave it there." And she told me, "She, you know, I've never had anybody tell me that before. I've never really thought about that before." And she 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 remembered that, and she she would tell me from time to time that you know she she's learning to to leave it at the Lord and not just think that she's got to worry about it all the time. And I don't think the Bible expects us to. Um, But to understand that the Lord loves you. The Lord is going to take care of that. It's going to work out in a way that He wants it to. And so, verse verse 14, that's what Hezekiah does. He brings his burdens to the Lord. Um, David had a similar trial in um, Psalm uh, 55. If you want to just turn back, turn over there for a second. Kind of an interesting, it's similar but not the same you see the difference here pretty quickly Psalm 55 let's start reading in verse 12 read down to verse 16 for it is not an enemy who taunts me but then I can bear it so Hezekiah has got an enemy taunting him all right, and that's, that's a trial that we all can relate to right? it is not an adversary who deals insolently with me but then I can hide from him but it is you man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to make, to take sweet counsel together within God's house and walked in the throng. Let uh, death steal over them. well. So so he first of all says, it's a friend who has betrayed me here. Then he says, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is a dwelling place. And in their heart, but I called you God, and the Lord will save me so there David does the same thing, but in this case, I think it's a little worse, and even David admits that you ever been betrayed by a friend or by even maybe another Christian and yeah, that's hard to deal with that's a lot harder to deal with than somebody that you know doesn't love you to start with some enemy right and and I know I've experienced that with people that you know wrong friends that all of a sudden uh they got off on in their own way and they turned their back on you. And that's that's hard to take. But it doesn't change anything, but it's the thing David do he says, I'm let them go. Uh let the Lord kill them, do whatever he wants to do with them. I'm gonna serve the Lord. He knows where to go. So we have to be faithful to prepare ourselves and wait for the Lord and He will keep us from falling for the lies of this world, for the deceptions of our uh those who might betray us, keep our hearts pure. And so the next thing here in uh, verse fourteen, or a little little time yet. what there it is. I had on the board, sorry about that. Uh he 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 praises prayer uh to the Lord as he lays his document out before him. And I and I thought, well that's just a great example of how our prayer should be. It's not it's a full you know, everything about prayer, but it certainly gives us some key things to think about when we come before the Lord in prayer for anything and for any reason. The first thing Hezekiah does then, uh, it seems to be very similar to the Lord's Prayer, right? Because the Lord's Prayer, which is a model for us, is uh, our Father which art in heaven. We acknowledge, first of all, that God is in heaven. We are on earth. We are creatures, he is the creator, he is the one ruling everything, all things are for him, we start there, we always start there, we don't start with, well, here's my problem with God, I need you to fix it, no, um, the Lord, this is all about you, and that's what he does, he extols the glory and strength of the Lord, you are a transcendent God, you are above all this, that's the reason I come to you, because you are the sovereign You have the only, you're the only one who can help me. And then the second truth down in 17 is he affirms that it is indeed the Assyrians have had a lot of success in overthrowing the nations and embarrassing their gods. In other words, he's being realistic about what's going on. He's not, uh, you know, hasn't fooled himself. He, He knows that this is a real problem. He, in this case, he knows that Historically, the evidence would, would, uh, seem to, uh, support the fact that he's gonna lose this battle. The Jerusalem's lost. Cause that's what's been happening. But that's the great thing about it. It doesn't matter how many times something happens. When the Lord says that's the end of it, that you, it's not gonna turn out that way for you, we can take that to the bank. So, he understands that. But, the third truth here, he states is that it was because in the in reality their gods were only figments of their imaginations, and so it's no surprise that those countries have fallen. But Lord, you're, you're not like that. You're the true God. So perhaps it's going to turn out a little differently, right? And then verse nineteen, which in some case, in one way, is the most important part of all this. And this is you know nothing new here, but reminds us that. He comes understanding that the reason that he's... is not so much that my skin will get saved or that Jerusalem won't fall. It's that you will glorify yourself among the nations. Because we have a reputation for being your people. And if we fall, what will, what will the nations say? So, again, that's his situation. Our situation is sometimes different. But we come to the Lord for whatever we ask. It's always, ultimately... To please the Lord and to glorify his name might be something that we need that would make us would be good for us. But at the end of the day, we know that it's if it doesn't glorify him, then we're asking amiss. We're not asking for the right reason. And and so we always got to keep that in mind. That um uh it's not just about our situation. Obviously, that is the impetus for us praying in that particular situation in this case, but it's always, Lord, help me, because let's put ourselves in a, in a situation. Hezekiah is in. Suppose something's about to happen to us that we're in imminent danger, imminent financial danger, physical danger, or whatever, uh, and we come unto the Lord. And we say, Lord, here the enemy is trying to destroy me. I need your help. But it might be the Lord's will <laughs> that you're going to succumb. So it, it might be the Lord's will for Hezekiah, because he didn't know at the time, that well, Jerusalem was going to fall. No, in that case it wasn't. But what is always the case is that, Lord, even if I am going to succumb to this, I'm here to be your glory. So... Whether my prayers answered the way I want it to or not, may you be glorified in all that I've done. And, and then it's a win-win. It, it'll always be good. Remember Paul, went three times, prayed to the Lord to remove the stone of the flesh. And the Lord said, I'm not going to do it because I want people to see, I want you to understand how weak you are. Talk a little bit about that, I think, in the next message. Uh, people need to see that. And uh so, but, but the, if, if our asking is that God will be glorified, then, you know, even if I'm not healed, that's okay, because I can still glorify the Lord. That's why I've got always keep those things in mind. Um, So we need this because we have so many running around telling us that God has a happy plan for your life, and it comes across like his main purpose is making you happy. You know, God is—he—he—all he really cares about is having a relationship with you. Now, does the Lord want to have a relationship with us? Well, of course. That's why He created us to, in part. But often we come across as if—I remember, a, I was at a funeral and um the uh, a, a older lady had um died, and I wasn't speaking, up was, and whoever was speaking, I was a guy I played golf with. He was a fellow Baptist pastor in town. And he gets up there and says that, well, um, God wanted her up there with him because heaven just wasn't the same without her. He he needed her up there. And I'm thinking, is that really what, is that glorifying the Lord? You know, but that's what happens. We, We start to make it all about ourselves. And when that, eventually you come to the point of realizing that, um, if I'm not happy, uh, there's something wrong with God. You know, we we, we get we make life all about ourselves. Um, so perhaps it's better to say that He often glorifies Himself through what looks like defeat, and often it's our weaknesses and trials that most honor Him, and that's why we are to endure in a godly fashion. And I think that a bunch of a lot of churchgoers think that God is glorified and the cause of Christ is further, furthered primarily by Christians looking like they have it all together. Looking successful in business, looking like they have a happy marriage, everything's going well, their children are all well behaved. And there are certainly goals that we ought to have, right? But we have this idea that um, that's what being a testament for the Lord is. That I've, I've emotionally I've got it together and I, you know, I'm able to, you know, conquer all my struggles, and that the humility of the Bible is seen as loserville. You know, someone who is despised of this world, someone who has been reduced, who, who has lost their job, who who is poor, who isn't is successful. Well, you know, they they must have done something bad. You know, that old legalistic spirit that people get. You know, in crisis, people. Have to, they think have to be appear to be succeeding or it's a reflection on God and that's just not the right biblical way of thinking we have a responsibility to be a testimony but if you think about the 2000 years of church history where many many godly people have been banished have, have been burned at the stake or, or killed in one way or another tortured you know, persecuted one way or another. And it looks like, they're, well, they're just not doing too good. God can't be happy with them. What's going on here? This looks bad for the church. No, those, those remember, they're in glory, waiting for God to take vengeance on the world. And that's, that's what we have to live in. That's what living by faith is. I live in the reality of what God has told me and not what it looks like out in this world. Well, let me stop there. We have a few more things to say about that, but, um, We've kind of run out of time. Any question, prayer? I have, Heavenly Father, we're thankful to be here today. And to see these examples in Scripture that are laid out for us, that reminds us that uh, you love us and that you uh, are taking care of us, but you're doing it in a way that, uh, according to your counsels, eternal counsels, in a way that we don't always understand, that we often won't understand. But we know that someday... Uh, it will be worth it all and that uh, it will be made plain to us. And so uh, give us contentment and faith and strength in these things so that we might be an encouragement one to another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.